going to go back to the Beatitudes for blessed are the persecuted. I find it a little bit comical that Jesus opens and closes the Beatitudes with two statements that we naturally disagree with. Blessed are is blissful are, happy. Blissful are the poor, blissful are the persecuted. Who would ever open and close a sermon, a subset of sermons with blissful are the poor, blissful are the persecuted. Such is the nature of our Savior and such is even greater the nature of the kingdom of God. And so I have not saved this for the end, but that's just the way that it happened. Tonight, by all accounts, we come to the conclusion of our journey through Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. And if you're like me, you feel like you know more than you knew, but you don't know much. At least that's the way I leave the Sermon on the Mount, saying I knew a little more than when I got started. I feel a little more comfortable with Jesus's statements, but I feel a lot more uncomfortable with Jesus's statements, if you know why, how those two things can exist at the same time. At least that's how I feel having journeyed through this. And um, I, I, have, I have counted these uh, weeks that we've been in this as some of the most um, wrestle-worthy weeks I've ever had to teach in that you go into these great statements by Jesus and you have to confront yourself. I don't know if anything makes you look in the mirror more than the Sermon on the Mount. And, it's, and that's a good thing because you look into the mirror and you either ignore what you see or you lie to yourself about what you see or you just accept whatever's there or you go to work on what you see. And you got all those options and we choose each of those probably repeatedly. I know I look into the mirror and I see things I don't want to deal with and sometimes I refuse to and they don't go away. <laughs> they don't get better. I know I look into that mirror and see things I know I need to wrestle with, and I am. And some things that I'm finding up my footing, so to speak. I don't know where you are in this journey and how this whole set of lessons has impacted you. I know that I am making assumptions, but my assumption is that if you are anything like me, and you probably are somewhat like me, or we wouldn't, you probably wouldn't be here this long, um, You've, you've worked. And so congratulations on having wrestled a little bit with Jesus in this. We do land on one though that for us in the modern era probably feels like it has less relevance than a lot of other of the, not just the Beatitudes, but a lot other of the sermons. Whenever Jesus says, turn the other cheek, all of us are confronted with our revenge, with our need to get ahead, with our need to get back at people. All of us. Some different than others. Some people it's literally physical. Some people it's emotional. Some people it's spiritual. It's mental, whatever. We don't all feel confronted with blessed are the persecuted. And one of the reasons for that, that makes this a difficult passage, let's read it first. Matthew 5, 10, 11, 12. You know it, but let's put it out there. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And a, just a sort of a precursory reading of this, and you don't dig too deep below the surface. If you just took it and you kind of ran with it in a literal sense, you walk away and say, the people who are persecuted are the ones who get to go to heaven. So it's what Jesus makes it look like through our sort of modern lens of reading is if you're persecuted, you get to go to heaven. If you're not persecuted, well, who knows? And um, that kind of leads to theologies of the more hell you put up with here, the more heaven you get to put up with later. That has actually kind of morphed into a real theology that seems to even get a little bit of traction in the rich man and Lazarus parable. You know, if you, if you beg at the gate long enough, and the, the wealthy man walks past you every day, it all gets flip-flopped in the next life and one will suffer while you succeed. And so um, I say all of that because those are sort of the paths that we run down with some of these without putting a lot of 
a lot of real mental acumen into it. Just let this verse sort of say the first thing it says to us and just boom, right off the bat, people that have it rough get to go to heaven. Um, and therefore that must be what makes them happy. I think you can probably tell I'm not satisfied with that rendering that, that well, people that have it rough, can, they ought to just be excited because they get to go to heaven because I think what that does is actually create a callousness among people that don't have it rough. Because what they do is just say to people who things aren't going well, you know, well, that's just your lot in life. At least you get to go to heaven when you die. And then you can just sort of walk past people on your way to your whatever it is you're doing that isn't getting you in any trouble and isn't getting you persecuted and isn't getting you cut down, isn't getting you stepped on. And I think what, I think that's the worst way to read the Bible, frankly, is for everybody else. Because then you don't have to be confronted with anything. And so you can go, blessed are those that are persecuted. Blessed are the people getting stepped on. Hey, you know, I feel sorry for them, but hey, that's just life. People get stepped on. At least they get to go to heaven when they die. At least they get to know the peace of God in their heart. I don't have to do anything about it. I don't have to try to make the world a better place. I don't have to try to ameliorate anyone's condition because, you know, in the end, they get the gold ring. And if that's the case, then you can forget the whole Sermon on the Mount. Why bother bringing the kingdom into this system? Everybody ends up where they need to be anyway. In fact, the faster you go through your hell, the quicker you'll get to go to your heaven. Um, no, we, we can do better. Jesus doesn't end on this because he's run out of things to say. And now he's at the end of the Beatitudes list going, okay, you want to know how you finally get to heaven? Just be one of those who gets persecuted. The reason this scripture is so difficult is not just because we push it for other people, but it's because we don't know what to do with it. Because we live in a, what I call the post-persecuted American church. We don't know what it means to really face the kind of persecution we see being faced by the early church. We don't meet with the threat of our lives at stake if we get caught meeting. We don't meet under gunpoint, being quizzed when we walk out about who is the real son of God. <laughs> and you might, and I know there were no gunpoints in the first century. You get the metaphor. There was still the edge of the sword. That, that was a very real thing and got worse and worse and worse as we see the Peter and Paul and James and John's move inexorably towards their martyrdom. And what we see is a church that is under the, is under the threat of the cross all the time, of, of literal crucifixions and beheadings and hangings and being sawn in half and, and stabbed through for rejecting the cult religion of the emperor, who is the son of God, that's Caesar. And the Christian would say, no, it isn't Caesar. It is the Jesus whom you crucified. And it's, that's like a double shot across the bow. And they were facing more persecution than we can imagine for that very thing. And, that, and that's just one thing they were facing persecutions for because it was actually coming at them from multiple fronts, not just Rome, but also from the temple itself. There was a persecution against the way. So how do we, in what I call a post-persecution American church, deal with this text? It isn't easy. So let's do some hard work, all right? And to do that, I wanna break it down into just three simple things that we're gonna to try to work on. One of them will take most of our night. So don't get scared if we stay on one for a long, long time, you know me. Let us re-examine persecuted. We're gonna re-examine righteousness and we're gonna re-examine heaven, but we're not gonna do it in that order. I put that up there um, basically because Jesus talks about them in that order, but I don't want to. And you'll know why when we're finished. Um, let's view persecuted starting with the Old Testament. I want to show you, I know I'm basically just telling you what we're going to do here. And that's sometimes I like to do that for my own sake, just to lay it out point by point. We're going to look at how an Israelite would have understood persecuted. Then we're going to move into the great songbook of Israel to get an idea of how persecution was responded to. And really, I didn't say all of this here. We're going to look at how it was supposed to be responded to. We're also going to look at how it was responded to. Those are not always the same things. What you're supposed to do is not always what you do, right? That's simple enough. We're not unique in that. Um, we're going to get some of that from David. And then we're going to see it through the lens of the New Testament. We're going to watch persecution and persecuted morph as a doctrine or as a definition. We're going to watch it sort of get legs and become something else. And together, we're going to land in a place of what I call the post-persecution church world, which is us. Then we're gonna take a look at heaven, 
Here's a hint. Not the place, but the thing. Yeah. We will take an examination of what he might have meant by the word heaven. And spoiler alert, it has very little to do with the place you go when you die. And thus, blessed are the persecuted, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, has nothing to do with if you go through enough hell here, you're guaranteed you get to go to heaven over there. And then we're going to look at righteousness, but not the standing of the believer. Not that that's not important. That's very important. Both that's material we've covered a lot. Instead tonight, and I think this is more important to the Beatitudes, we're going to look at the possibility of something even more challenging than the personal righteousness. And so we're going to take right, and you, I think you know where we're going there too. We're going to take righteousness in a little bit of a different direction as our landing spot to do that. So let's get started with how the Israelite would have viewed it. Sometimes, simple Bible study technique. It's not universal, but it's pretty darn good. And that's the law of first mention. And what I mean by that is you can go back in your Bible and you can find the first place that a word is used, the first place that a concept is used, the first place that an allegory is used. It does not necessarily mean it always means that, but it sets the tone. So the first time an ark shows up in Scripture, it takes people from chaos to order. It takes you into a place of safety. And then when an ark comes back the next time, baby Moses is riding in it, floating down a river. And you can take the metaphor and just apply it from a place of chaos into a place of safety, from an old world into a new world, from babies dying at the hands of Egyptian soldiers to the palaces of Egypt. It doesn't mean the ark always means that, but it means the ark always can mean that. Law first mentioned. You get a tree in a garden in Genesis, watch that tree. He's coming back in the book of Revelation, whatever that tree stood for in Genesis. You can at least work around that, work with that, work through that way up here in the book of Revelation. All right? So the law first mentioned lands us in the Torah, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. <coughs> that you may live. I'm going to let six simmer for a moment because that's quite a theological punch. I'm going to go to seven. Also, the Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you. And here's the law first mentioned coming to bear. This is the, the Bible's first use of persecuted. Israel hears nothing about persecution until they get to the very end of the Torah. And God promises them that the day is going to come that people are going to persecute them. This is a people who have faced the slavery of Egypt. And yet, they don't get any promises about reciprocity due to persecution until the end of the Torah. And look at what it comes after. That's that sixth verse I've got simmering up there. The Lord your God, Jehovah your Adonai in the Hebrew, your covenant creator God, is going to cut a covenant that's circumcise your heart. How do we know that's cut a covenant? Because the New Testament tells us that our hearts are circumcised in Christ. So we move into a covenant. Israel says you're going to move into a covenant when your heart is going to be circumcised and your descendants to love the covenant-keeping Creator God with that brand new cut heart and with that brand new circumcised soul. That cut away who you used to be to introduce who you will be. This is death, burial, resurrection imagery. I hope you realize that death, burial, resurrection is not a New Testament concept. God was doing that all the way through. We cut, start over. Cut, take out, start over. That's circumcision. Cut, take out, start over. What's death? Cut, take out, burial, resurrection, start over. God, that's how God's always been doing it. So his desire was always new creation hearts. I'm going to cut what you used to be to create who you could be. That's the seed that goes into the ground and dies and brings forth a new fruit. And so God tells Israel that they're going to be able to love with their heart and with their soul and that that will be the source of their life. And God promises then to put curses on the enemies of those that hate you and on those who persecute you. And the interesting thing is that Israel, who, is, who, who deals north, south, east, and west with, west with persecution on every turn as they enter the wilderness, as they enter the promised land, they cross the Jordan at Kadesh Barnea, they go into this land, boom, 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 they're getting shot on every side, and their only consolation is that God has their back. You can read this two ways, in my opinion, and it's best to read through Jesus. 
If you know Jesus, read through Jesus, right? So you could read this two ways. Number one, you could go, if people come against you, God's going to get them. That's the easy one. You can read through Jesus then and say, blessed are those who are persecuted. They get something that doesn't meet the eye. They get a kingdom that isn't like the kingdoms of this earth. And so through an Old Testament lens, the, the God got your back when you were persecuted. Through a New Testament lens, God got your back when you're persecuted. But they didn't look the same. Old Testament, how does God get your back when you're persecuted? Their thought was, God's going to mess some people up. New Testament lens, God gets your back when you're persecuted. What's that look like? God mess some people up? Or... God unlocks the keys to a dimension that no one else can see because in living through the persecution of the believer, you enter into a realm of the kingdom not accessible to those that don't walk through that kind of persecution. Mm, Okay, that's deeper. That's not as easy to grab hold of. It might be why it's the last of the Beatitudes. Is it really where we can grow to a place where we really kind of understand what that looks like? Okay, put all of that aside then and read it through the lens of the Psalms because sometimes we respond the way we should to persecution and sometimes we don't. And I'm going to tell you up front, I'm going to read 20 verses. I know that's dangerous and scary and it's a, it's a recipe for being here a long time. So I'm going to be right here at my Bible. I'm going to let Brian be Mr. Screen. He can move when, I, when we move from verse to verse. But I just want to show you what it looks like in Psalms 109, what it looks like when David pleads to God for judgment against false accusation. Another way of saying, here's what I'd like for you to do to my persecutors, all right? Psalms 109.1, do not keep silent, O God of my praise, for the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful have opened against me. They've spoken against me with a lying tongue. It looks like David has some people lying on him. Now, David does enough stuff to be accused of without anybody lying on him. But then again, don't we all? So, it isn't a judgment passage as much as it's understanding that sometimes we might bring the false accusa- the, the, the accusation on ourselves, but not always. And so sometimes it is the lying tongue. They have also surrounded me with words of hatred, and fought against me without a cause. In return for my love, they are my accusers, but I give myself to prayer. Here we start to get a hint that we might have the Christ character in our story. Because verse 4 sounds very much like Jesus. In return for my love, they are my accusers, but I give myself to prayer. Thus they have rewarded me evil for good, and hatred for my love. Set a wicked man over him. All right, now, here's what I want you to do to these people who are lying about me. Set a wicked man over him and let an accuser stand at his right hand. Hebrew word right there for accuser. Ha-Satan, H-A-S-A-T-A-N, the Satan. Translated into English as accuser. David's prayer, if he was speaking this in English, is set a wicked man over him and let Satan stand at his right hand. Ooh, gosh, what a prayer. When he is judged, let him be found guilty. Let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few and let another take his office. I remember when I was younger, somebody got put in the president's office that people in my church circle didn't like because they didn't vote for him. And they used to quote Psalms 109.8. Like every Sunday. And say, let his days be few and let another take his office. There are, there are right ways to use scripture and there are wrong ways to use scripture. Here's Bible, 10, Bible class 101. All right. Let his, they, didn't, they didn't think this through because there's always context. Because the next verse, let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. So be careful what you pray, because you might be asking your prayer, not that God has to ask, do all the things you ask, but just be careful what you're asking, because sometimes I don't know if we realize the spirit from which we are asking. Let his days be few and another take his office literally doesn't mean let him get voted out. It means let him die. His kids have no dad and his wife has no husband. So 
This is why I'm not a bit, I know we just fire things out there because they're clever or they're funny, but there's always more than meets the eye. And it's why don't play fast and loose with scripture. And, and it's why I, I think you should take the Bible rather serious. You don't have to be serious with the Bible, but you should take the Bible serious. Because to be serious is often to miss the point and to miss the, the art and the beauty. But to fail to take it serious makes it on par with any other foolishness that someone came up with. And then it gets used loosely and it gets used to hurt, not to help. Let his children continually be vagabonds and beg. Let them seek their bread also from their desolate places. Let the creditor seize all that he has. Let strangers plunder his labor. Let there be none to extend mercy to him, nor let there be any favor to his fatherless children. This is getting worse. Let his posterity be cut off, and in the generation following, let their name be blotted out. Wow. How would this... this what, can you imagine this? Living this, feeling this way towards your enemies. Now, when we get to the Sermon on the Mount, and if you ever look at the Sermon on the Mount, you can think, eh, it's not that tough. I just dare say you haven't really taken serious man's ability to respond to slights and anger. Maybe you're a little too gentle-hearted to really wrestle with the Sermon on the Mount. But the truth is, is that this is the world into which Jesus is preaching. And this isn't some far-off distant world called David's Israel. This really sounds a lot like how we feel when we get slighted and wronged. This is our idea of how to handle persecution. Let the, where are we, where are we, 13? 13, 14, let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be continually before the Lord that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth because he did not remember to show mercy, but persecuted the poor and the needy man that he might even slay the broken in heart. And here's persecution through the lens of the psalm and the psalmist David sees the persecution of the poor and the needy man as being worthy of all of the stuff he just said. I built you all the way up to this moment. So the man that would treat the poor and the needy in this way is in need of all of this, that he might even slay the broken in heart. As he loved cursing, so let it come to him. As he did not delight in blessing, so let it be far from him. As he clothed himself with cursing as with his garment, so let it enter his body like water and let oil into his bones and let it be to him like the garment which covers him and for a belt with which he girds himself continuously. Let this be the Lord's reward to my accusers and to those who speak evil against my person. Now there's David's prayer of what he hopes God does to the people that persecute him. And again, David, although he is being quite colorful with his language, really isn't that far off on how sometimes we feel about the people who treat us wrong. All right, that's taking you through Israel's journey into what it means to be persecuted. Let me take you right past the Beatitudes, but stay in the Sermon on the Mount to a passage we've already covered. We're gonna bring these together. Matthew 5.43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those that hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be the sons of your father in heaven. So what if you were to pray Psalms 109 on those who persecuted you? What would that make you? Because according to Jesus, if you want to be like one of your father's sons in heaven, then you need to do verse 44. Love your enemies, bless the, those that curse you, do good to those that hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you, and who persecute you. And this is a form of PTSD for his Jewish audience. Because when they read persecute, their mind goes all the way back through the Psalms and all the way back to Deuteronomy, and it runs all the way back to Egyptian slavery, and they go, we have had hell to pay just for being who we are. And here we stand in front of this man who some say may be our savior and his response to those who have persecuted us and who have hurt us is that 
we should do all of this. And that if we will, then we'll be sons of our Father in heaven because he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. The more I stay with the stories of Jesus, the more I become convinced that the reason Jesus was an outsider is not simply because he disappointed people with his messiahship or his version of being a savior, but because he sounded like a crazy man. And I mean that. And I really do think that he was ostracized because the stuff he came up with doesn't go over well in good company. And this is what you're asking us to do. So to close the Beatitudes with blessed are the persecuted is to say, take all of that that you've went through. And instead of looking at your opportunity to get back, realize that it gives you the opportunity to access something that you might not have been able to access otherwise. Now, we're going to keep all of that simmering because that doesn't really solve our issue with what Jesus meant in the Beatitudes. To do that, I want to try to get an, an idea of what the New Testament looked at persecution as because I opened this by telling you that I think we're in a post-persecution church world because none of us are in here tonight scared that when we leave, they're going to pull us over and possibly throw us in jail because we went to a Bible study and we're going to have to come up with some clever reason for why we were at Sterling Theater tonight that has nothing to do with reading the gospel and just hope they don't ask us who the Savior of the world is because we don't want to have to lie or we don't want to have to go to prison. So in those respects, we're not really persecuted at all you get made fun of a little bit on social media somebody says something to you about this or that and go ooh, you know undergoing a lot of pain and problems and so that's why i say we're in that post-persecution world but does that mean we can just kick this scripture out i don't think so i think we have to do better than that we have to find a better landing spot so maybe we could tweak what persecution means, because I've got bamboo shoots going up underneath people's fingernails and people dying on guillotines and all those things for persecution, and maybe it is a little more. Let's start with Paul. Here's what Paul thought persecution was. Acts 22.4, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. Okay, five-star definition of persecution if you ask me. That's, that's what I'm talking about right there. People being bound and delivered into prisons and dying. All right, Acts 26, 11, I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Five-star definition of persecution. Well done, Paul. Punish people in church and try to get people to blaspheme the name of Jesus. Be exceedingly enraged against people and chase them out of the country into foreign cities. Good definition, persecution. Here's another one, Galatians 1.13. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. He's up front. What I was doing was really just trying to eliminate the church. Okay. And then a bit of a slowdown for a second. Because what happens in Galatians 1, right after this moment, is that Paul starts to tell you about his conversion. Because he met Jesus and he was zealous for Christ. And he didn't consult with all the other apostles, but instead he went off to Arabia. And what we know is that he goes off to Arabia and he visits Mount Sinai. It's what a good Jewish guy does. He's had himself a revelation. He goes, I'm going to go where Moses went. And Paul climbs Mount Sinai where he spends a couple of years. And what happens on Sinai? He receives the message that he calls a dispensation of grace. And he comes back down off the mountain, both literally and proverbially, and he consults with no one and he starts preaching the gospel of grace. And he is so offensive that he's ostracized by most of the church community. The apostle Paul writes most of the rest of Galatians to say, look, if they're preaching any other gospel than the gospel I presented to you, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, you don't have to be circumcised in order to be righteous that it's not about following the dictates of the law in order to declare yourself righteous. If they preach anything other than that, ignore it, reject it. He's so bold, he rebukes Peter to his face because Peter will preach liberty 
And then whenever the Jews show up, he won't eat with the Gentiles because they will be caught eating with the unclean. And it infuriates Paul. And he preaches this gospel that by the time he gets to Timothy, he says, in the last days, people are going to heap unto themselves teachers having itching ears. Which means Paul knew that we were always going to want to hear something other than what Paul was preaching, which was salvation by faith in Jesus, salvation by grace alone. And there's always going to be a segment of the church whose ears itch for someone to preach on sin to them and someone to preach on performance to them and someone to preach the law to them and someone to preach them into hell. And our ears itch for that good old fashioned down home gospel that's nothing to do with the gospel of the finished work. And Paul said in the last days, and I go, what last days? I'll guarantee you there's been a bunch of last day moments where people heap to themselves teachers because their ears itch to be told what they need to do in order to go to heaven or what they need to do in order to be anointed or what they need to do in order to have grace or forgiveness. And Paul said that day is coming. And as Paul began to preach that, the guns turned on Paul. And so Paul began to be mocked. He began to be made fun of. He began to be ostracized. He began to be condemned. He said, I was striped. I was shipwrecked. I, I got hurt in fastings and beatings. I got rejected by the church world at large. And yet, remarkably, Paul starts to round out his idea of persecution. That it doesn't just mean people come up and punch you in the face or throw you in prison. He uses this little example. Galatians 4.29 as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. This is the same word in the Greek that Jesus uses when he says, blessed are those who are persecuted. And I want to paint you a little picture right here. I know I jumped in in the middle of Galatians 4 because I know we don't have time to preach that whole chapter. I just thought I would give you the characters. He who was born according to the flesh, according to Paul's fourth chapter of Galatians, is Ishmael. Ishmael's mother is Hagar. Abraham and Sarah can't have a son. And God promised Abraham that he was going to have a son and that he was going to have sons' sons and sons' sons' sons and that they were going to flood the whole earth and bless the world. And Abraham can't get his wife pregnant. Simple issue. And he goes, well, how in the world am I going to be the father of a multitude? My wife can't even get pregnant. And his wife comes up with a novel plan called sleep with someone else and we'll raise the kid. And so Abram does that and he sleeps with Hagar and he has Ishmael. And the Bible calls him a product of the flesh because Hagar is a young woman who doesn't have a problem getting pregnant. And it doesn't take a miracle. It can take a miracle to get pregnant. But it doesn't necessarily take a miracle. I know we all say that it is. That baby's a miracle. And some babies are miracles. Some babies are just biology. <laughs> I mean, at least that's kind of how Paul pitched it. He went, Abraham slept with Hagar. They had Ishmael. Call that a product of the flesh. You can get a product of the flesh if you try. But it won't be what you need. He goes, and then there was a son of promise. And the son of promise took a miracle. God had to open, supernaturally, miraculously open the womb of a 90-year-old woman for her to have Isaac. That, he goes, is a miracle baby. That's not a biology baby. That's a miracle baby. And he goes, so there's a difference in the baby of the flesh and the baby of the spirit. He who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, Isaac. And then this interesting phrase, even so it is now. So Paul has really widened his definition of persecution. And here's how I know he has widened it. Persecuted is the Greek word dioko. And it means put to flight. It means harass. It means trouble. It means molest. It actually means a bunch of stuff. And most of it's physical. But apparently, by the time Paul becomes the poster child for preaching grace... And everybody hates him for it. He decides that persecution isn't just getting thrown in prison and beat up and striped and stoned half to death. Persecution is a little more than that or a little less. Because I want to show you how Ishmael persecuted Isaac. Genesis 21.8. So Isaac grew up and was weaned and Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, Ishmael, whom she had borne to Abraham, scoffing. 
or the Hebrew word making fun. So, oh, let me give you, well, that's not eight, nine, here's 10. Therefore, she said to Abraham, cast this bondwoman or her son, for this son of the bondwoman is not going to be heir of my son, namely Isaac. Sarah's just a touch sensitive, by the way. I mean, all Ishmael was doing was laughing at Isaac, which is kind of what kids do to other kids. And Sarah took it pretty personal and said, get this woman out of my house. By the way, that verse right there, Paul quotes that in Galatians 4 when he tells you what you ought to be doing with gospels that don't sound like grace. He goes, get them out of your life. If it isn't just Jesus and you... And that's the recipe for righteousness. Get it out of your life. He goes, even so now, in the way that Ishmael was persecuting Isaac, we are being persecuted now. My question to you is, how was Ishmael persecuting Isaac? He was mocking him. He was making fun of him. It was literally that these two forces agitated one another. In that definition, Paul says, even so it is now. And so I find that maybe we can do something with the New Testament story of persecution. Because though we are in a post-persecution church in regards to our lives being on the line, if you ever actually follow Jesus, I didn't say if you go to church, if you ever actually follow Jesus, get ready you're going to get a little persecution. And what I mean by persecution is the Galatians 4 version. Somebody is going to turn on you. It might be mockery. It might be making fun. It might be laughing. It might be ostracizing you. It might be cutting you down. It might be vitriol and hatred. It might be lies made up about you. Yes, persecution can come in all kinds of forms. According to the New Testament, it comes in all kinds of forms, but it comes as a result for righteousness' sake not our own foolishness. I'm not talking about somebody cuts you down because of something stupid you did. A lot of what we call persecution is just us being an idiot, <laughs> quite frankly. Not for righteousness' sake, it's for stupidity's sake. You did something dumb, you get called on it, don't call that persecution. But when we do face it for righteousness' sake, there's something that we access. And Jesus called that heaven. What did he mean? Let's go back to our two Matthew moments. Remember in 544, this is deeper in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, so that you may be sons of your father in heaven, you should love your enemies and do good to those who hate you and pray for those who persecute you. Take persecute you and sons of your father and jump back into the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not blessed are people when they undergo persecution, they get to go to heaven when they die, but rather blessed are those who when they undergo any kind, any kind of persecution for righteousness' sake, they access the kingdom of heaven through that. Think of it this way. In New Testament terms, Heaven should be thought of more as a way of life, a system, than it should be a final destination. Just read that. I know there's a lot there, but start, don't read the whole thing. Just read that first sentence again and let it soak in. In New Testament terms, heaven should be thought of more as a way of life, a system by which you govern yourself, than it should be a final destination. It is a destination, but it's a destination Ultimately, not primarily. You're going to heaven. But that's not the primary talk. That's not the primary conversation about heaven that the New Testament's trying to have. This is why if I were to ask you tonight, what's heaven look like? You can't come up with one verse in the New Testament. And if you think you can, I challenge you, that's not heaven. That's the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And what's that city look like? Streets of gold, walls of jasper, gates of pearl. All the stuff we say heaven is, is actually a city coming down from God. Out of the system of heaven comes the dwelling place of the redeemed. Those who are called the bride, that's where they live because that's what they look like. That's where they belong on 12 cornerstones of the apostles in a city 1,500 miles wide and high and long. And it has a river of life in the middle and trees of life and the leaves heal the nations. And if that's literal... There's more problems than trying to fit it onto a planet. But if it's the church birthed in heaven, brought to the bridegroom, then we don't have a verse that tells us what heaven looks like. But we do have a lot of verses that tells us what heaven acts like. And that's the New Testament. And that's what I mean by it is less a destination and more of a system. Think of it in terms of Jesus walking around going, this is the way we do it where I come from. Right? I mean, how should we respond? This is the way we do it where I come from. This is what we would say. We go, this is how we eat this where I come from. This is how we wear this where I come from. This is how we say that where I come from. What's that mean? It doesn't mean everyone else does it. It doesn't mean everyone else knows what you're talking about. In fact... Some of the stuff you do where you come from just going to sound crazy to people that aren't from where you're from. They don't say it that way. They don't eat it that way. They don't do it that way. It's because it's not their way. And that's what Jesus was doing all the time, going, this is what it looks like where I come from. These are the people that get ahead where I come from. And read the Beatitudes that way. Where I come from, the poor get to go first. The meek get to go first. The mourning get to go first. The hungry get to go. He, he said, where I come from, everything's reversed in the way it is here. Don't think you're going to be great because you do great things. He goes, that's how the Gentiles do it. Where I come from, we wash feet. Where I come from, the first go last. Where I come from, the last go first. It's a constant stream of where I come from, where I come from, where I come from. Sometimes it sounds like this. In my father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Or it could sound like this. Where I come from, there's a bunch of room for a bunch of people. And you don't get to tell anybody that they don't get in. Where I come from, me and dad are building rooms and we all get to live together. Where, that's where I come from. That's how we might understand that phrase. This is what the kingdom looks like. So... This is the way we do it. Where I come from is Jesus concerning himself with teaching heaven as a kingdom we can experience. A kingdom we can live out of. Which is opposite to the kingdom of the world. Kingdoms of the world are what you have in this dimension. Kingdom you live out of is more than a place to go when you die. You might say it this way. Heaven is more than a place you go to when you die. It's never less than a place you go to when you die. Because if you're absent from the body and presence with the Lord and he is there, then you must be heading to whatever that is in his kingdom. But why would you wait until you die when your first death is in Christ here and he helped let you access his kingdom? And so you get to live that kingdom now. And if you do, then you can treat death as if you were going back home to a familiar place because you've already been introduced to how they eat and how they dress and how they talk and how they act and how they walk. And if you tell somebody what home is like long enough, when they finally visit and they hug your parents, they go, it feels like I already know you. He's talked about you so much. It just feels like I'm home. And I think that's the joy of following Jesus is that you get to be introduced to dad's way of doing things before you get home. So that when you get home, you're home. And you go, this is what it was all about. This is what it looked like where he comes from. I think it's why John says in his letter, 1 John, what manner of love is this that has been bestowed upon us? And I told you that's closer in the Greek to what out of this world love is this that has been bestowed on me? I think it would sound like this. Where is this from? Nobody loves like this. And I think it would be Jesus with his arms outspread dying for us through death, burial, resurrection, and ascension going, that's how we love. 
where I come from. Where I come from, we love the unlovable. So 5.12 and 5.10, back to back, not in order. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. Great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So you're going. There's a heaven, there's an in heaven to be had. Thank God. But there's a heaven to be had. Now, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They're not just going, they get it. And so there's something to be said for following Jesus in a manner that separates you from the non-Jesus follower. And to follow him in a manner that maybe somewhere along the way you get ostracized is good for you. You're in really good company. You have followed Jesus in a way that you don't look like the average businessman. You don't talk like the average young woman. You don't live like the average old guy. Whoever you might be in whatever walk of life you are in, you have something about you that speaks as if it is from another country. And Jesus says, that's okay. That's where you're going because that's where you're from. Now, whatever that looks like to you, you take that and do what you will with it. But I land in one more very challenging spot. Look at that text again. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I have introduced you to this thought more than once. So shift gears for a moment and consider the fact. And I hope you've took me up on the challenge. You can do this digitally. Digitally is a really good way. It's fast. You can go to an online Strong's just to, get, just to see words come out of the Hebrew and the Greek and type in the word justice. And all of your translated words for justice are going to stop at the end of the Old Testament. And you don't find justice one time in the New Testament, which is a cry and shame because the Greek word for justice is the same word used for righteousness. And righteousness is all over the place in the New Testament. And what's happened is that's caused us to believe that righteousness is this private internal thing that I have. Maybe you don't. But all I really have to do is make sure I'm righteous. And that's between me and Jesus. How I work out my righteousness is between me and Jesus. But if that Greek word for justice was inserted just here and there, it might make our salvation less here and more here. <laughs> In other words, it might make us less about privatizing who we are in Christ so that we get to go to the private floor called heaven and instead take the heaven that is here and realize that we might have a responsibility to push that out here because it might not be about my righteousness, it might be about your justice. That then starts to cloud our understanding sometimes of what we think the gospel might look like. Blessed are those who are persecuted for justice's sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then justice, whom, which for so many of us in the Western world, we only look at as people rightfully getting what they deserve. They go, thank God for good old American justice where people get what they deserve. And yet that isn't what justice is necessarily all about in terms of people getting what they deserve when what they deserve is fines and imprisonment. It's also getting what has been paid for for you or what belongs to you in spite or despite those who want to withhold that from you. So that justice swings both ways, not merely as retribution for wrongs, but as relief from wrongs happening to you. Not just punishments of wrongs you do, but relief for wrongs that are unjust. 
That way, when you read unrighteousness in the Bible, you read injustice. So whenever unrighteousness is talked about, injustice is being talked about. So I would just say this. Let us strive to be on the right side of history in terms of justice. I'm not a big fan of the phrase social justice warrior. Here's why. We're not warriors for justice. We're actually not warriors for anything else. This warrior talk is a product of a militant mind influenced by Rome more than it is influenced by Jesus. Jesus is not calling you to be a warrior. He is calling you to be a servant and a steward of the kingdom of God, determined to serve your fellow man with the justice of heaven. And the justice of heaven runs through the cross and it runs through the resurrection. Jesus does not ask you to pick up your sword. He does ask you to pick up your cross every day. I heard a politician this week say, we are being called to pick up. Jesus is calling us to pick up our sword and defend, and they named their state. It was a state's rights ploy. I thought, I don't know what Jesus, what golden calf you fashioned, but my Jesus doesn't call me to pick up a sword, but he does call me to pick up my cross. I think if we would lose the idea of warring for justice, we might realize that justice is what we are to dispense naturally as we bring justice to the people who have none. Blessed are those who've been pushed aside, knocked down, a.k.a. persecuted. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them, so act like it. What a way to end his beatitudes. And it's our way that we'll end our journey through the Sermon on the Mount. There's more that we can say. There's always more that you can explore. And I hope you do that as you work through it. I don't know what persecuted looks like to you. I don't think it's my right to tell anybody whether they are or are not being pushed aside. What is my responsibility is to show forth the righteousness, the justice to them that has been shown to me. And that I must actively do, and so must you. And you've got to determine how that looks and, what, and in what way you are to do that. Here's something I do believe very much. You cannot passively, you cannot passively promote justice. In other words, you can't just sit idly by and go, yeah, sera. You know, if it doesn't hurt me, I'll just keep my hands off everybody else, let that go. It doesn't work that way. Sometimes you do have to actually help the woman caught in the act of adultery. Sometimes you actually have to go to the well in Sychar. Sometimes you have to hug the leper. Sometimes you have to go to the funeral at Bethany. Justice cannot be served on the sidelines. But that isn't at the tip of the sword. It's on the cross. My self-sacrifice, your self-sacrifice, meeting the sacrifice of Christ in his death and resurrection. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Father, thank you for tonight and thank you for the words. And we hope we've done them justice. And as that takes root in our lives, each of us must wrestle with what that looks like. And I pray that we will. I pray that we will not be passive about it. The answer is never just to sequester, but what is that answer? I think it's it, different for each moment, but it looks like you. Help us as we keep our eyes on you to see that, to follow that pattern in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah.